Hi, I'm Dave Miranda, General Counsel and Past President of the New York State Bar Association. Welcome to Miranda Warnings. You have the right to remain listening. This week on Miranda Warnings, we're very pleased to have Patty Salkin, the Senior Vice President for Academic Affairs and Provost of the Graduate and Professional Division of Toro University. She's the former Dean of the Toro University Jacob D. Fuchsberg Law Center and previously served as Associate Dean and Director of the Government Law Center and the Raymond and Ella Smith Distinguished Professor of Law at Albany Law School. Welcome, Patty Salkin. It's really great to have you here. We're going to talk today about your new book called May It Please the Campus, Lawyers Leading Higher Education, and uh, that Patty Salkin just wrote. Uh, tell me a little bit, Patty, uh, wh- why is it that, that a lawyer will make a good leader in higher education? So uh, that, that's a great question. Right now, higher education is under siege from lots of different places. First of all, there are people questioning the value proposition of higher education. So from a business standpoint, uh, watching enrollment, watching to make sure that schools are, are relevant, that's a challenge. There are economic and fiscal challenges that are causing a lot of schools to um, merge and consolidate, kind of like mergers and acquisitions. There are, uh, with the rise of the regulatory state in the 1980s, Higher ed is highly regulated, maybe not more so than other industries, but more than it had been uh, in the early days of higher education. Um, We also have lots of campus issues, free speech uh, issues, for example, that are in the news just about uh, every week. And so, you know, all of those plus other things taken together really uh, beg the skill set that lawyers have as creative problem solvers as people who um, are knowledgeable about how um, the legal and regulatory climate works. Lawyers are great communicators because lawyers have to frame their uh, issue to a jury and have to convince a judge and jury um, about uh, what, what they need in order to advocate for their client, and that's no different than advocating for your campus or your university. You did a lot of research in uh, that you've you've put in your book about the history of lawyers leading educational institutions dating back to, you know, revolutionary times and how that's progressed. So why don't you, if you could share with us, you know, how it started with lawyers leading educational institutions and then how that's progressed over time. Sure. So, you know, the the brief uh, thumbnail sketch is that, you know, in the 1700s, as higher education was developing in, in, Uh, the colonial era, the presidents were either lawyers or ministers. Then uh, shortly as time went on, lawyers kind of stepped out of the picture and uh, president, and so did ministers by the way, and presidents really became people who went through the academy, um, who uh, had been well-educated, who were faculty, who took on administrative roles like department chairs or deans, um, maybe some central administration, and then moving up to the presidency, and that's been the traditional or conventional uh, route for people to become presidents. But uh, something unique happened in the 1950s and 1960s um, with civil unrest, uh, civil rights, uh, protests on campus, the Vietnam War, and all of a sudden in the 1970s we find that the presidents of almost all of the Ivy League schools were lawyers. 
And that trend since the 1970s has continued. And since then, since the 1980s, every decade, the number of lawyer presidents have uh, at least doubled from campuses across the country. My research focuses on the roughly 4,200 Carnegie classified colleges and universities. So it's increasing now in, uh, in, in recent decades. Do you think it's because the, the law schools need lawyers leading them? Or do you think the increase perhaps is because lawyers are looking for alternative career paths and, and this would be one of them? So I, I think that it's a, a combination of both. I think that uh, prior to the 1970s, there were uh, less than half of the number of law schools, ABA-approved law schools that we have today. So we are educating more lawyers. We have more lawyers serving as faculty and serving as academic administrators. Um, and they are often looking for a career path to the campus presidency. But interestingly, at least half of the college and university presidents did not come from legal education. They came from other paths. And so I do think that um, all of our uh, New York State Bar Association members are potentially viable candidates for higher education leadership positions, even if they've never taught in higher ed a day in their life. And so the book really uh, tries to lay out the different pathways that lawyers have taken to the C-suite. So, you know, you mentioned the New York State Bar Association, and of course, uh, you're a lawyer and member of the New York State Bar. You've been an active leader of some of our committees related to education uh, here at the New York State Bar. Um, and so since we're talking about New York, uh, can you share with us some examples of lawyers that are leaders of educational institutions here in New York? You know, New York actually leads the country with the number of lawyers who are presidents of colleges and universities, and followed behind that is California, maybe because we're um, two of the biggest states, um, but maybe because there's receptivity to lawyers as leaders. Right now, in I'm just going to look at New York City for a second, there are uh, going to be seven lawyer presidents come this summer. And there would be nine, but two are uh, retiring. And so uh, let me just tell you a quick thumbnail about some of them. Laura uh, Roseberry is the current president of the University of Florida College of Law. Uh, in July, she will become president of Barnard College. Linda Mills, who is a lawyer, but actually working as a social work professor at NYU, has just been announced as the NYU president come July. In Fordham last year, uh, Tanya Tetlow became uh, president, and she's the first non-Jesuit president, who's a lawyer, to lead uh, Fordham University. John Jay College has Carol Mason, who is not only the first woman president of John Jay, she's the first black president of John Jay, and she came from the private sector. She was at Alston Bird, and then she worked uh, in government with the U.S. Department of Justice as the Deputy Associate Attorney General, never worked full-time in higher ed before she became president of John Jay. At Brooklyn College, Michelle Anderson is the current president, and she was the dean at CUNY uh, Law School. Laura Sparks became the president of Cooper Union in 2017, a lawyer by training, the first woman president of Cooper Union, 
and she came as the from the executive director of the William Penn Foundation and had worked in the financial sector, um, not in law firms uh, and uh, not in higher education. And in 2020, Frank Wu became the president of King's College, also part of the CUNY system, and he had been the dean at UC Hastings uh, College of Law. And just rounding out New York City, Hunter College has Jennifer Rabb, who is retiring after 20 years, as is Lee Bollinger at Columbia University, uh, both lawyers. Jennifer worked at Cravath and Paul Weiss, and then she was chair of the New York City Landmarks Commission, never taught in higher ed before she becomes president of Hunter College and had a remarkable successful uh, two-decade uh, run. And Lee Bollinger uh, also had been president of University of Michigan, um, and uh, he, after 21 years, is uh, retiring from Columbia. So you, you're a lawyer, obviously. You spent your career, though, in uh, legal education uh, in a variety of leadership roles. Uh, is there any sort of resistance amongst faculty or academia in having a president that is non-academic, right? So it, it, I'm going to say it's different to have a lawyer that spent their career in academia. You know, they look for writing articles and, pub, you know, publications, et cetera, like you've done, for example, um, versus a lawyer that's just coming in from practice, whether it be a private practice or general counsel. Is there some resistance to pulling someone in who's a non-academic? You know, uh, the answer is, the, the loyally answer, it depends. Every college and university, when they uh, look for a president, they have a presidential search committee, they write a job description, they uh, write the qualifications of what they're looking for. Sometimes they hire uh, search firms to help with talent acquisition, sometimes they do it themselves. So it really depends upon who is on those search committees and what they think. Part of the purpose of, of writing this book was also with the search committees and the search firms in mind to tell the story that lawyers and lawyers who are not academics are no longer non-traditional and unconventional and that there, are, there is a skill set that they bring to the table um, that can help advance the colleges and universities. So for lawyers that are, uh, let's say, interested in higher education, and but they're not in higher education, what kind of advice or recommendations would you give to someone that wanted to, let's say, pursue a leadership role in, in the academia? So another great question. Some of the pathways that I've seen lawyers take who have not taught full-time in, in higher ed, um, the most popular is serving on a board of trustees of a college or university. And... Uh, Lawyers get asked to be on these boards all the time, and you could also identify your own school or schools in your community that you might have an interest in. The, the boards tend to be interested in lawyers because they need the skills that lawyers bring, but once you're on the board, you then get to know everything about the school. You learn about budgeting, you learn about higher education policy, you learn about the regulatory environment that higher ed operates within within the microcosm of your institution, but you can take that and go to other places. So I have seen a lot of schools appoint current members of their own board of trustees who are lawyers to the presidency, and then board of trustee members who just apply to other schools because they kind of like it as an alternative to um, their private practice. 
I've also uh, seen lawyers in government who seek a campus presidency who also had no experience. And so their uh, government experience may or may not include private firm, private sector experience, or judicial clerkship experience. But a lot of people, like for example, at one point Skidmore uh, University had Jamie Studley as their president, and she had worked in the White House and she worked at the U.S. Department of Justice. Mark Garan is the current president of Hobart, William & Smith. Um, he was the director of the Peace Corps, and he worked in the White House as director of communications and deputy chief of staff. Um, Marvin Krislov is the current president of Pace University. He also worked in the White House. He worked at DOJ as the deputy U.S. solicitor and at the Department of Labor. And so before they got into higher ed, that's what they did. Marvin Krislov, Krislov's path is another example for our members. Um, lots of universities either have in-house counsel or and or they hire private law firms to represent them on all issues or certain kinds of issues. So while the number of in-house counsel has increased significantly since the 1980s, all 4,000 schools don't use their own in-house counsel. And even schools that do, like my university, we hire outside counsel for special issues all the time. If your client is a university, that also is an entree into learning about higher education. And I've seen a lot of people become presidents through that pathway. So is, is there a downside? So I don't think that there are any downsides any more than non-lawyer presidents. You know, there are lawyer presidents that have been wildly successful, and there are lawyer presidents that uh, were not successful. So, for example, <clears throat> I wrote a blog post recently about two lawyer presidents who uh, their downfall was uh, they didn't pay enough attention to how important football and athletics were to their university. And they made some unpopular decisions in that regard, and their presidency became derailed as a result. But you didn't have to be a lawyer to, to make that kind of a, a decision. So do I think that lawyers make better presidents than non-lawyers? No. I think the, the purpose of the book was really to tell the story that lawyers can make equally great presidents and that they shouldn't be dismissed um, because they didn't rise up through the academic ranks. So you did, a, like I said, you did a lot of research uh, in this book, and and there's a lot of charts, uh, which I appreciate, right, to to keep the to keep the book moving. Uh, what in your research did you find that was surprising? So I, I you went in obviously with the thought of looking at how lawyers can lead universities and and you know sometimes the research just takes you places that you didn't expect was there anything that surprised you in the research i think the biggest common denominator of lawyer presidents in the background of of these individuals was that the overwhelming majority had at some point had a government law experience in their background and so it, it led to, uh, uh, you know, thinking about what is it that government lawyers do that brings a skill set that would be important and attractive to colleges and universities. And again, part of it may be presidents are fundraisers and presidents need to um, build their campuses. They need capital infrastructure. Well, government can provide capital 
uh, funding for a lot of projects. As I said, government is highly, uh, uh, sorry, the uh, higher ed is highly regulated by government. So knowing how to um, get legislation passed that's important to your institution, and it could be on academic issues, on licensure issues, and other uh, kinds of things, federal and state financial aid, getting more more money available to your students or stopping money from being decreased uh, in the budget. All of those things are important in knowing how to go, where to go, um, because it's obviously different than what the textbook says. Um, also, uh, on the fundraising side, many people that came from government were either fundraisers for their own campaigns, because we have a lot of prior elected officials who are sitting as campus presidents, or there were people that were involved in fundraising for other uh, candidates. And so they know people of means and people who could potentially be wooed to support higher education. Right. So uh, it sounds like a campus president would need to have multiple talents, right? Not just an understanding of the academic side of it, but the finance side, the fundraising side, which is of crucial importance, and as you indicated, the regulatory side. And also, I think, the the being able to respond quickly to that campus crisis, and that's another thing that government lawyers do all the time. You know, you may leave your office at the end of one day, um, close the lights, and then go to sleep, wake up in the morning, and you see the headlines in the newspaper, and suddenly you have to be prepared to respond to the unexpected. And that's a lot of what happens on campuses as well. And so being able to be that quick, creative problem solver, um, which lawyers both in the public sector and the private sector are called on for. So, so your book and the research you've done shows a trend of lawyers increasingly becoming leaders of uh, educational institution. What do you see for the future? Uh, do you see that trend continuing, uh, number one? And then what kind of traits and experience do you think f educational institutions are going to need going forward? Yeah, so by the end of the 2010s, which was the last decade, there had been serving during the 2010s 427 unique college presidents. And I say unique because sometimes people were appointed more than once in a decade because they went to a different university. So we're sitting here not even halfway through 2023, and we currently have 330 sitting lawyer presidents. And so, you know, I think the number is going to continue to jump to exponentially increase. The data in the book cuts it all different ways. The number of appointments in each decade, the number of people serving in each decade, the number of people that got appointed more than once. It looks at where you went to law school. Does it make a difference? We looked at all the degrees that people had. You know, do you need a JD plus? And the answer is no, you don't need it. There are a number of people that have MBAs and PhDs and uh, other master's degrees, but again, the overwhelming majority have their, their earned JD, and, you know, and that more than suffices for qualifying people for the job. So I do think that there are going to be more and more uh, lawyer presidents. I think that, uh, is it going to change the landscape of higher education? No, but I think it's going to help individual colleges and universities one at a time with the unique perspectives and skill set 
that lawyers bring that people from other disciplines may not bring. And again, it doesn't mean that they're not going to be successful, good uh, presidents. But I think that you get, in, in my opinion, of course, I'm speaking as a lawyer, I think you get a little bit of value added uh, because lawyers are trained to be leaders. And in fact, uh, a couple of years ago, the American Association of Law Schools created a new section on leadership. And there are more than three dozen law schools that right now, including Albany Law School, that has a formal course on leadership for law students. So, so we've been talking about edu educational institutions in general, and we really didn't focus on law schools. And obviously, law schools are, you know, you're going to be more inclined to see, right, a lawyer leading a law school. I think that would probably be right. much more likely. But you're talking about general educational institutions, not just law schools. Correct. I mean, and I'm not really talking about law schools because you're right. In almost every case, the dean of a law school, you know, is a lawyer. I mean, they're going to say it's a requirement. I think the ABA requires it. Right. There's only a, just over a dozen private independent law schools where the dean is also the dean and the president. Um, every other law school in the United States is a university-affiliated law school. So the head of the law school is a dean, just like the dean of a school of business or the dean of a college of arts and sciences. Um, you know, so they, they function within the hierarchy uh, in thousands of institutions of higher education as just the dean of another school. You know, your book focuses on uh, general educational institutions. I just wanted to make right. it clear that we're, when we're talking about the progression of additional lawyer leaders, of institutions, it's outside of law schools. Yes, as well. because I, I think there's there's been some interesting research uh, on whether or not law schools are open to having non-academics as deans of the law schools. And for uh, a little while um, in the 2010s, I would say that there were a number of non-academics appointed as deans of law schools, and that interest has waned. And still, law schools. Uh, hold to the, their norm, which has been having somebody who's been a law professor um, become the dean of the law school. But what we're talking about is really the president of the entire university that maybe has a law school as part of the university. But again, there's 4,300 colleges and universities, and there's only 200 law schools. So most of these universities don't have a law school associated with them. And we're seeing a lot of law schools that provide you know, educational opportunities for what I'm going to say would be like non-traditional lawyer positions, right? Not that you're not necessarily going to go out and, and be a practicing lawyer. Do you think we'll see or are we seeing law schools that are preparing uh, their graduates for academia? So I, I hope that this book uh, provides deans and faculty at law schools with exactly the idea that, that you just raised, that uh, through leadership development and uh, through a combination of lots of courses that are available in law school now, you could create a path for uh, people who want the, um, the critical uh, reasoning analysis that law school gives you, um, plus the communication skills to, to really lead a campus without the JD, but with some other degree. The only thing that I will say is that um, most of the time, colleges and universities uh, require a terminal degree. 
So if somebody has a bachelor's and, and a master's, right. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's not going to be enough. Um, they have to have the whatever is the terminal degree in their field, the highest degree in their field. So, you know, during the pandemic, interestingly, we saw a lot of campus presidents appointed who were doctors, who were MDs, and who had masters in public health because campus communities were navigating in the unknown and they wanted somebody who could provide some leadership that they could believe in. And so I think just like we did that in the pandemic, there are other situations where lawyers fit into um, that role of providing some comfort and assurance to uh, the campus communities. Well, Patty Salkin, it's really great to have you here on Miranda Warnings talking about your book, May It Please the Campus, a book that I think would be of interest to lawyers interested in getting into higher education, as well as those who are just interested in higher education, because it talks a lot about the needs of higher education. And so I, it's, I would recommend it for anyone that's either interested in higher education or already in higher education and looking at where where it's going and the direction it's going in. So thank you very much, Patty, for thank being you. with us. Thank you, Dave. And we have a feature on Miranda Warnings, and you're a, a repeat guest uh, called Music Book or Movie. We already talked about your book, so you can't pick that uh, unless they're going to make it into a movie. Uh, so if you have, if when, when May Please the Campus comes out in movie form, we'll have you back. Okay. But do you have, you have a, mu uh, a music book or movie for us? Uh, uh, music, just what my favorite music is. So uh, I believe that I am among the small percentage of the top Billy Joel fans uh, in the country. I'm not going to tell you how many concerts I've been to because I stopped counting a long time ago. Uh, but but uh, I would say that he ranks up there. Okay, Billy Joel, thank you very much. Patty Salkin, may it please the campus. This has been Miranda Warnings, a New York State Bar Association podcast. You have the right to subscribe, rate, and review. 